Hello, welcome to the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. I'm Henry Fenby Taylor and bit of a different episode today. Recently, we went to Digital Construction Week, the seminal event for digital prop tech, con tech, energy were also there, geospatial were also there. And I took this as an opportunity to go and talk to some very interesting people um, about innovation in the built environment and specifically around cyber physical infrastructure. Now, the reason I did this is because there's been a long-standing problem in infrastructure, in government-regulated professions and sectors that seems to somehow stifle innovation. And there are lots of reasons given for that. Procurement, cronyism, corruption, laziness, structural factors. Whatever that means. Culture. Whatever that means. Ethics technology, generational divides, just really loads, loads and loads and loads of of reasons are given. Um, But ultimately, change can happen, change does happen, and there have been a lot of advances in the built environment in recent years. And we've collaborated with sectors like energy, but also manufacturing, automotive, aeronautical, to bring in new processes and approaches over the years. So, I don't think it's by any means a lost cause. So instead of complaining, what I did instead was I went to go and speak to people who are involved in making change. And there are a lot of those people at Digital Construction Week, and I'm very lucky to to know some of them. So if you don't know them, well, then uh, you get to listen to them now. So um Without further ado, um, let's start at, I believe, the beginning, um, when I uh, sought out some very learned individuals to get their views. So I've been walking around Digital Construction Week today, although it's only a two-day event. I don't know why it's called a week, but never mind. Um, and I bumped into some interesting characters who, uh, whose views I respect um, from the research organisations in the UK uh, involved in delivering a lot of built environment and construction uh, innovation projects. Um, so if you just introduce yourselves, say hello. Sure thing. Hello, Henry. Nice to see you. It's Jackie Glass. I'm from University College London, where I'm Professor of Construction Management and um, Vice Dean for Research for the Bartlett Faculty. Wow. Excellent. What a CV. Excellent. So um, um, I'm uh, Mohammed. I am the program leader for MSc Sustainable Building Design and Engineering at University of Greenwich. Excellent. Well, it's great to have both of you here. Now, we were have been looking at the funding landscape for R&D and how do we get better at it and I think there is a realization that there is a bit of a gap in the UK government's funding of R&D in terms of how we go from proven concepts to thriving businesses. I agree. 
excellent. It's great talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Jackie, you were start. Yeah. yeah, no problem. It, you know, this has been a question, Henry, for a long time. Um, but I think we're feeling that gap a lot more these days because there's a lot of activity at both ends of the pipe. Okay. So, you know, I think for a research, which, a research and development which is uh, connected to our sector, we have to involve industry. It's fundamental. You know, from my perspective, we, we have industry on board before we submit a proposal because we want to go in the right direction from the start. Yeah. So it would be um, you know, incomprehensible to actually do it any other way. But what happens is, of course, universities are motivated to bid for what you might call foundational or early stage research. And the pull from industry is, well, we need something we can actually deliver and execute today, tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so there is the, you know, there's a bit of tension there. And this is why we look to government to fill the gap, because we need these safe spaces to work together and so you know I've always always sort of relied on a portfolio of funding routes to kind of patch that together but I shouldn't have to patch it together yeah, yeah, I, there yeah. should be a seamless flow if we're to make the most of the innovation available I, I think the, the, the kind of like academic funding they're a little bit kind of like disconnected from the from the industry, although we had like Innovate UK kind of like uh, funding to try to kind of like uh, bridge the gap between the academia and the industry. But over the past couple of years, I have seen that the high end research kind of like uh, money, they are not kind of like uh, as collaborative as they should be. While we have lower kind of like uh, grants, kind of like a smaller money, which they are tackling like a day-to-day -day issues so we have seen some collaboration over there but what we really want to actually see is that this high-end blue sky research that they have been funded by the taxpayers money by the public to be also translated into business ideas and do not sit at kind of like academic papers. I think that's the gap is that all these fantastic ideas that are happening at universities, they should kind of like uh, come to the universe, come to the industry. I think what's really interesting now that's happening and, and um, listeners may not be aware of this is uh, the UK Research and Innovation, which is the main government funding route, of course, that we access has been issuing an extraordinary, well, it's a tsunami, quite honestly, yeah. of huge interdisciplinary calls across our sector, but many, many, many others, yeah. you know, engineering, IT, quantum, everything. And there's been a flood of calls coming out. But what they're often after is for numerous disciplines, academic disciplines to work together and numerous uh, industrial sectors to work together. Now, that's all well and good if we're looking at grand challenges. OK, carbon, etc. I have no problem with that. But we miss a trick because actually that doesn't enable us to dig sufficiently deeply into our own home sectors sometimes. Mm, okay. 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 So um, one of the other things that I'm looking at is that the, the variety of fundings also has to be considered. Because at the moment, if you're looking at the winners of all these academic kind of locker funds, you're going to see that... It has been kind of like a small group of people who keep winning 
these funds because when you go for a very large amount, uh, you know, I understand the mindset. When you have a large amount of funding, you're looking at de-risking that fund. And therefore, you're going to say, okay, have a massive consortium and people who have delivered, you know, this, you know, massive fund research. Yeah. So then you kind of like it, you converge into a small group of, and this is the data that you can easily go and looking at the past winners in that environment in the past five, six years. Keep the same, you know, you're going to see the same names. Yeah. So if we diversify this fund and have kind of like a small, medium range, and also large one, then we can actually get more a, a bigger group of people to get involved. So do you think that's because the way that that funding is supplied is you need to be quite an expert at winning that work in order to win that work? There must be an element of that involved. No, my, my point is that if you have funding being announced, like I don't know, three million pounds, so. The risk management of that fund is massive. So you're then we are looking at people who have absolutely demonstrated and then lots of big companies. If you have medium range funding, then you you're more willing to risk for more innovative ideas. You're more willing to risk on smaller companies coming on board. Which is, I think, one of the big issues with some of the big programs is they're so big, yeah. they have to succeed. Yeah. Exactly. So there is no, you know, we all know working in R&D that things fail and it's about failing them quickly and then pivoting or, or just changing how you thought about the same project. But they can be quite, um, these sorts of very big calls have to be quite inflexible because we are spending public money. You know, I think there's a tension here between the R&D community who want to move fast, break things, go, oh, we tried that, didn't work, it's fine. And also then and the sort of the government purse that is accountable to the public that has to show some value and I think absolutely. there's a tension there we need yeah. to balance yeah there is yeah absolutely and you know I, I feel a bit conscious when Mohammed you're talking about people who hold these big sums of money because I've been you know myself privileged to be in that position um, but What's really nice about some of the funding mechanisms like the Transforming Net Construction Network Plus that I led is that it actually it enables others. It, the whole purpose of it is to catalyse new activity through smaller awards, and that's really helpful. Um, but that's what, how one, I managed <laughs> to get into. Yeah, One of the funding mechanisms that you know, um, when I was earlier in my career, that I accessed very much in partnership with industry. Um, was partners in innovation. Now, these were very small grants from, at the time, a DTI, DETR. They were all in partnership, small amounts of money, but they were super fast, super competitive, really effective, and actually loads of people did some great work on them. But they were exactly as you've described, Mohammed. these sort of nice, self-contained, modest funds, yes. which are a lot less risk to run. Yes. So I completely, you know, um, you know uh, identify with what Mohammed's saying there. And if we only have have big blocks of funding being released, then funnily enough, it is only going to be the people with the, the capabilities and the infrastructure, institutional infrastructure, yeah. to run those bids who are going to succeed. So, what we're so talking it's an inequality issue. Is where we see, and I think this is something that I've heard from speaking to people inside UKRI and Innovate UK, is that they know that they almost need an intermediary. They need something to connect or bridge or, or create those opportunities. Because 
because they can see the big picture and they can set that direction because you know they need to work within the halls of government and they have very specific strategies that need to be applied and so they they can do that and align that but then it should be for these kind of these lower down funds that could be much smaller and much smaller pieces mm. to go and deliver some value deliver and deliver some innovative uh, businesses which i think is kind of the that's an area that the uk I think generally, not just the built environment, um, but the UK generally suffers from an excellence in primary research in that sort of theoretical early doors, sorts of um, high-end stuff. And then when it comes to patents, we're way down the league. And it feels like this might be, there's some sort of gap there that we need to fill through this sort of kind of bridging funding or something. Especially mid-range funds, they, they shouldn't be product focused. They should be capability building focus. I mean, okay. that, with the mid-range kind of lock of funding, so you're not necessarily trying to tackle one of the big challenges. You're looking at, okay, these people, even if they fail, they are ready to win the next game. And that's why, so I mean that in the, in the, in the IT industry, sometimes they, you know, people, they go and buy a failed startup. They don't buy the actual product, they buy the team, and they know that, okay, this team, they can actually win the next project. So we should look at these fundings that, okay, it's not going to, the, the final outcome, maybe it's not perfect, but the team who are going to work for two years together, they are going to build capacity and capability to deliver something fantastic. So, so there's all sorts of interesting ways I've been looking into kind of different mechanisms for funding innovation and different ways of getting different outputs. Um, I think there's some existing mechanisms that are have been quite interesting that private businesses use a lot. So private businesses use hackathons a lot, where they have an existing product that they have, and they will give access to you, um, and you come along and you have a go, and it's very programming. This is not PowerPoint. A lot of hackathons that I, I've run hackathons in the UK, I ran some for CDBB, um, often they're not software people, or they're not technical hardware people mm. who come, but where they are, these businesses like Microsoft, like Amazon, they, they are adding business value to their um, bottom line by getting people to come in to solve technical problems for their solutions. So that's just an example, but it's a very different approach from the sort of this quite arduous, because even if you do have an intermediary organization, you still have to go through this procurement process. It would be so much, um, I think we would get better outcomes if we could have people coming to us, us being, say, the government or a utility or a government department saying, we think you have this problem, you've shown us your you've shown us inside mm -hmm. we think you could do this better like this here's an example and then you've started with success you've started with something really small that might work and I think it's quite a, it's on its head from how things currently operate so mm -hmm. um, I don't know how it's gonna be received but uh, yeah. that's what I'm gonna say yeah there's um, I think you know, to some extent, Henry, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there because um, in the past, um, UKRI have run a, what are called sandpit events, um, where, you know, bringing a group of different disciplinary folks together, you know, you draw up the proposals together before, you know, so you submit together. Yeah. Um, and, but you know there is funding, 
So you're working all together in the same room, as it were, you know, towards that target. I really like that mechanism. They don't use that terribly often because it's quite resource intensive. But hacks and hackathons, I think, are a really interesting space for a lot of people. They're really exciting. They need to be obviously convened and configured in the most appropriate way. One of the, and and I can see a lot of colleagues really jumping for that opportunity institutionally though the thing we need to navigate is the IP space yes. um, and you know for companies and universities and that can be a bit tense can't it? Absolutely absolutely so um, can I add something to Hackathon because I've been in different Hackathons uh, especially with Digital Catapult and you know um, there is a lot of emphasis on digital kind of like uh, topics in hackathons but you'd be amazed how many problems that we have in construction that you cannot really resolve them by having a new application i have recently done a hackathon on social housing and problem that they have is that how we can actually ask people to leave their you know building so we can actually retrofit the building and make it better so there was a social kind of like a challenge that it's it's very hard. It has nothing to do with technology. No. And we kind of like started bringing people from social care, and that was the first time that people from social care sitting next to people from construction were thinking about okay, you value and stuff. They're going to say oh, they have no idea about that. So it's a great start, though, isn't it? I think that, that you're right. I can completely agree with you that I think sometimes hackathons can be thrown at problems effectively uh, without understanding how that it, is going to produce exactly. or start. Solution. Look for a broader picture because lots of hackathons they're targeting that. Okay, how we can you know use this one with digital information? It's coming from the IT mindset, but we can actually change it and say, okay, hackathon is a good thing, but not necessarily has to be a digital one. So here we go. So in that case, you need to be able to change those things that operate, and sometimes you can't do that because that is against regulations or etc. So this is kind of leaning to towards that idea of a regulatory sandbox mm. concept where you can try new ways of managing these big issues around housing, healthcare, transport, safety, net zero. There are some really, really big issues, but they're all implemented. They're all implemented in businesses, in streets, in cities, in industries. You know, these things all can have a place and a time. So I think it'd be really interesting to explore that potentially uh, for hackathons. Um, another idea that... Um, Another idea that I've been talking to a few people about was um, competitions in the different sense of setting a sort of grand challenge. Lots of private funds do this. They say, right, we want you to um, make a plane that can fly across the Atlantic um, using uh, only solar. I don't think that's a good example. I can't think of any good examples. No, I mean, that in, the, in the construction, we have seen a lot of competitions uh, around Hyperloop and the kind of... Uh, so the sort of thing, right, so yeah. Hyperloop. So the, con- the competition is, show us it working, then we give you the money, which is kind of a slightly different uh, perspective. Um, can be seen as very entrepreneurial. There have been lots of 
competitions through it. They're, they're, you know, competitions are centuries old. As um, I believe the sextant was made out of a competition like that back in the day. I'm going to fact check myself. You're all looking very good. <laughs> I mean, but I, you know, navigation tools, big, big challenges of of the time. Need somebody to come in and say, right, we can do this. You know, Dyson runs these sorts of competitions, and they use that to give themselves IP. You know, they are taking intellectual property um, as that's the price. They're going to give you potentially millions of pounds, maybe five thousand pounds, depends on the scale. You know, they're going to give you money, and then they take the IP and they turn that into a product. And if you're, you know, there are serial inventors out there who do that sort of thing and who could get into that space. So I think that would be really um, a really interesting approach. But I've kind of, I've, I've obviously highlighted there are issues with that. There are absolutely, and you know, as Mohammed was saying just a while back, you know, the, you know, the, the focus on technology is compelling. You know, and we feel drawn to it naturally. That here is here is something new. This is can solve our problems, you know. But if you don't understand the the glue, the organizational glue that holds projects together, it holds companies together, it holds collaborations together. Um, a lot of, I mean, a lot of the work that myself, colleagues, and a lot of the academics in the, our space are, are, are really sort of focusing on ecosystems as an idea here. And I think with the, with the, uh, if you think about di uh, digital ecosystems, this all starts to make sense because if you don't have an ecosystem mindset, you network of parties working together on a kind of a shared purpose, I guess, is a good way of thinking about it. You haven't got that. The technology will be isolated. It will not deliver what you want. Deliver a solid solution. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm really interested in sort of you know the other side of the coin here, where we're thinking about what capabilities. You know, where what do we need to do to help this technology to land effectively? Yeah, and I think that's interesting. For me, I think there is this. There is this tension, and we're coming back full circle between um, research organisations who create lots of amazing innovations, um, and then the funding and the capability and the ecosystem to take those ideas and turn them into something that is sustainable long term. And that does mean money. And you know, I hate to say it, great ideas without funding, effort, and people to buy it. Don't go anywhere, and so that's what we really need to, I think, change or improve upon. And it does happen, but I think we can do that. I believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'm quite well leaving that bit in, definitely. Um, one last thing. One of the big issues that we've seen with a lot of the demonstrator projects, a lot of the data projects that goes on in the built environment, is around. The IP related to the data, and it's not specifically the IP. It seems to me, from my perspective, it's the fear of giving other people your data. If you're a water utility, if you're an energy utility, if you're the the Ministry of Defence, which you know I can understand, you know definitely I can definitely understand them. Um, that's that's a real concern, but. Um, I wonder if we need to address that holistically in a way that there's all this government-owned data that isn't necessarily personally identifiable, that isn't risky in all sorts of ways, but is being held by organizations that do not share data. And I think we might. I think we need to approach that in a new way to try and create a holistic data framework, a legal data framework that addresses that. Oh yeah, this is a great topic. 
I'm really concerned about the industry and academic the level of understanding of, of what we mean by data. Mm. I'm really concerned about it. You know, just as we were concerned some years back about carbon literacy, for me, you know, I'm, I'm really twitchy about data right now because I see so many people really not understanding what they mean by it. They're seeing risks where there is none. Yep. They don't know how to handle it. They haven't got management frameworks to think about it. They haven't got a C-suite that understands the benefits of understanding your data. If that does, you know, if that's not a bit circular, you know, yeah. Um, so I, I'm really concerned. This is a kind of an illness for the industry right now. And as we are moving towards, you know, to a kind of like embrace industry for IoT, so there's going to be more data that is coming on daily basis and kind of like knowing what is happening with that data. It is very important, and then there, there are groups of people are looking at okay, how we can actually use uh, uh, data ethically. I mean, even kind of like even search engines are coming that they are not sharing your data with with, with the with advertisers, and then so, but still, it's a long way to actually establish that kind of like boost the framework and also the ethics, you know. So it's so not important. it's not necessarily the framework of using this, I'm using a specific protocol and this is the server that I'm using. Now also the ethics of kind of using data, it's not there because the technology is moving faster than the other areas. And I'm coming back to the funding kind of like inequality. So you are not going to see any funding coming to promote you know, data ethics. So you're gonna see so many funding can go to actually develop a device but not that much how we are going to use the device and what would be the impact of it. So um, my view of, of that space is that when we were talking about hackathons, you are opening yourself up for people to come and look into very often software or a technological solution or even a process and say, I want you to design something and test it now, today, on how that works. And if we can't provide that transparency, if there is not that openness to even understand what's going on inside, government-regulated utilities, government-regulated industries, government departments, then they can't improve. And I think if you're inside there, then you can make some, if you're inside these organizations, you can make incremental changes, you can occasionally make very big changes, but you you always get more with more transparency, is my yeah. view. And I think that's yeah. what we need to change. We need to open this up in the right way to the right people. Quite so. Caveat, caveat, caveat. Yeah, yeah. 100%, 100%, Henry, 100%. Yeah. You know, um, I'm having some really interesting conversations right now um, with major infrastructure firms and uh, government departments. Um, who are really concerned, they're coming at this from different directions, right? But actually, we don't understand how to create a safe space for collaboration. Safe ethically, safe legally, safe for, pe for all people of all backgrounds to participate. We don't know how to do that yet. I think there is learning in a lot of different places and I'm really keen to bring that together and I know a lot of pe others are as well. So for me, I think that's central to helping that sort of solve that problem actually. Excellent, well thank you so much for both of your time. You've been very helpful and um, I'll see you around at the rest of the event. Sure will, Surely. thank you. <laughs>
really a very fascinating conversation there with uh, both uh, Mohammed and with Jackie, both leaders in their own way and who understand and are involved in these discussions in a very detailed and deep way. <sighs> making infrastructure better, making these decisions better. There's there's so much upskilling that needs to be done, as uh, as Jackie was saying, to make sure that the senior decision makers know that they're making the most effective decisions because things are changing so rapidly now that um, we need to be able to pivot really quickly. So there's definitely an education piece required. Um, I stand by the point that we need to get faster and faster uh, innovating. And I take on board Mohammed's point that it's not always about data and it's not always about software. You know, I, But I do think that by getting greater insights into the way that these big issues uh, that are affecting all of us, like climate change, um, like social justice, um, are, are tackled. Um, if we can understand what's happening inside there, if we can understand what's going on, which to me means data, which to me means measurement, then we can make better decisions. And I think that's that's a huge part of uh, of what we need to do next. I'd also like to uh, remind you that um, they were both very Team Henry. It might just have been the heady air of conference season, um, but I'm, I'm taking that. I'm taking that. Well, anyway, um, I, as well as speaking to uh, the academic grandees, I also spoke to a number of startups. So let's get back to the action. So I'm here at Digital Construction Week, and I am joined uh, by two lovely people who are from Pre-Optima, who are a uh, disruptive uh, tech startup in the built environment sector. Would you just like to introduce yourselves? Yeah, I can go first. Hi, I'm Sarah. Um, so I have been joined Pre-Optima very recently, um, and my role is business development. So excited to take this product to market. And uh, what it is in brief is a carbon emissions reduction tool. It's a software okay. platform. So if you want to work towards net zero, you need an easy way in real time to assess your whole life carbon and reduce it. So we like to do that at the pre-design stage, so in, in the design stage and at, at pre-concept. So you can use generative design or you could import a matting model and quickly work out what the whole life carbon is and use it to optioneer and look at how you can reduce your carbon in your building. Awesome. Yeah, I'll go next. So I'm Alex. I handle all of our marketing and outreach. And just to follow on with what Sarah said, uh, Preoptima really focuses on this concept of a carbon twin. So in the industry, you hear a lot about digital twin. Um, it's all the rage at the moment, but we use a carbon twin. So it's basically giving industry actors across the value chain a single carbon figure to look at um, and really streamlines your pre-application at conceptual stage carbon impact to as built design um, all the way through to, to demolition. So, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's a really strong case for data there. So um, yeah, twinning seems like a, a logical solution to me. So I, I'm down for that. That's awesome. So um, just in terms of your journey, I'm really interested to know what sort of barriers there are or what you think what could be done using the government lens uh, the UK government lens what could be done to support your organization's uh, mission it's obviously that means it's success as well um, but also to kind of create demand yeah I think there's a lot to explore there um, we speak to local authorities quite often um, they're under-resourced, they haven't got budget, and often they haven't got the knowledge in-house to be able to accurately assess sustainability. 
um, and know how buildings are going to perform versus net zero targets. So what we found is they don't have a tool that enables to do that. And then we don't have an easy way or the budget necessarily to be able to support them in the way that we would like to. Um, we, they need access to the data and the ability to um, use that data to inform just as Preoptima gives them that ability. It's an enabler. So um, do, you think they, do you think they have that data? Do you think that data exists somewhere in their, in their world or does it need to be created? Or uh, I think they receive a lot of data as to how they organize and store it, that's, yeah. a, that's another, another uh, issue. Okay, um, yeah, and I think, it, you know, you kind of touched on it earlier with the uh, the skills issue. That's that's a very technical task. Yeah, yeah. people that are expertise in the LCA or whole life carbon space are like gold dust at the moment. You, you can't find them. Mm. Um, so everyone's kind of vying to get these people on board because everyone needs someone in the space, but whether you can have the expertise or not, it's a, it's a different issue. Um, especially at government level, like you said, with restricted resources, um, people are going more into corporates where you can get paid better. Yeah. Um, so governments are really struggling at the moment to get to get the people that can do it. So it's got to be outsourced to some degree, right? I think that's that's yeah. that's the reality of, of how things work in the UK. And that can often mean it's it's more expensive when you're getting consultants in to solve really kind of technical problems or, for you. Yeah, or alternatively, you could have a really intuitive in-house tool that doesn't necessarily require expertise to use Do you use know it. one of those? Mm, I, <laughs> I can think of one. Okay, okay. But I think even building on your point, there aren't enough consultants who have this knowledge. Even yeah. in bigger commercial organizations, there aren't enough consultants for the... We're adding, what, the, the building footprint of New York every month. We haven't got enough consultants to advise on that on a global scale who have the knowledge. Mm. So we need to have the tools which enable people to do it at a, a much, at, at scale. Yeah. So th th it sounds like there is a need for that kind of understanding of the data that exists. So we're talking about their buildings, right? We're talking about their built assets there. Yeah. You know, they still have some, you know, tens to hundreds of buildings that they look after and they need to know their carbon impact, right? Yeah, and at the end of the day, what gets measured gets managed. So I know with some of the councils that we've been speaking to, now that the London plan, you have to do pre-application, planning application, whole life carbon assessment, and then as built. So a lot of people are following on with this and they're just being inundated with all of this data. So they have it, but whether they can sort through it and know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, so it, there's a lot at their fingertips that they could use constructively, um, but yeah, it's just being able to manage it. And currently it's kind of data without direction. So if you don't have legislation, not necessarily the, the data can just be sat there, but not pulling towards any specific legislative measure. Uh, so we've asked for this because we, been, you know, the person who is directly asking these people to supply them with data might not know what the data is for or have a way to then feed it into a wider decision making mm. or, 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 you know, assessment. And that's really interesting. Yeah, because I think that's, that's certainly an area that legislation can fall down and where regulation can fall down is when you're regulating into a hole. You know, you're just like, OK, we did the measurement. Now it's all gone. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think governments have a lot of good intentions at the moment in terms of making these reporting, this reporting mandatory. But then it's their, their own worst enemies because they make it mandatory and then people follow suit, but then they just can't cope. No. So it, it's like a vicious cycle. It's got to be achievable, right? And what happens is it's, it's siloed. So you'll have a data point 
and then you have another data point and another data point, but those are completely disconnected. Yeah. And you have to have some kind of a diploma in order to be able to read that data. Whereas a tool like ours would be act as that carbon thread throughout the journey. So you have one place to go back to and multiple stakeholders can easily access that material and that data. Excellent, that's fascinating. Thanks so much for your time, both of you. you. It's been wonderful meeting you. Great to meet you too. So clearly, reflecting back on that, there's a real need for all of the legislation that we have in for net zero, all of the things that already different government departments and local government and regulated uh, industries need to comply with. But if we aren't doing things with that data, with all these things they're collecting, then we're missing a huge opportunity and we're adding a huge burden to the already stretched finances of these people that have to procure this work, adding extra effort to the people that have to deliver it. And hey, I am what I am I'm not saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. What I am saying is we should do something with it. And that's the whole point, right? That is the whole point. If we want to get to net zero, if we want to really balance the books on this planet, we need to know what we're dealing with. So that was the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast for this week. A total departure, as I said, from our usual approach and no regrets here. We do... uh, coming soon have some more interviews with other disruptive startups and well-established tech companies and well-established tech companies as well to understand how they're making that difference in the world and it wouldn't be a proper episode unless I tried to sell you XYZ reality so I'm going to take a moment to do that bear with me So XYZ Reality has flipped the script on the way that teams build complex projects with the world's most accurate augmented reality solution, the engineering-grade Atom. It's not not an Atom, it's a hat, but it's called the Atom. So now, for the first time, you can view and compare holograms of 3D BIM models on-site in real-time against the real conditions, allowing your teams to accurately validate work at every step. And the impressive part is, is that they can achieve less than 5mm accuracy, which just knocks the competition out of the water. The Atom is so accurate, you can literally build from it. So you will never build anything wrong again. No more looking furtively from iPad to iBeam for you. XYZ Reality provides you with a full managed service that includes a dedicated field application engineer, meaning you can step back and let them do the heavy lifting. You don't need to waste time and money on training and dedicated staff, you can get started straight away. And what's truly amazing is XYZ Reality reports all the build issues into a single easy to use dashboard. The moment they're raised, this level of real-time data flow means no more data lag, loss or misinterpretation. You'll be able to spend more time building and less time dealing with issues. Is it accurate? Yes. Will it reduce rework? Also yes. Will it save your project time and money? Definitely. 
In fact, their customers are reporting their rework activities have dropped from 30% to less than 1%. So that's an over nine times return on investment. So if you're looking to take control of rework, increase project accuracy, and change the way you build, go check out XYZ Reality at xyzreality.com. Book a demo and prepare to be blown away. So that's XYZ Reality. Build it right first time.